Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, I'm super excited to bring back Monet Supply. He's a former guest. We brought him on back in the fall to talk about governance broadly, DeFi treasuries along with Hasu. And I'm really excited to have him back today to go deep on MakerDAO. And it's one of a few, I would say, a few DeFi protocols that has just really, really proven out product market fit without huge liquidity incentive programs, which I think is really starting to show itself in this bear market. Over the past few weeks and months, I think there's been a series of governance proposals and discussions that frankly are quite complex. I think Rune, the founder of MakerDAO, has come back with his lengthy proposal for maker governance. Hasu more recently has posted a proposal to simplify and, and scale maker governance. There's been some recent drama around the addition of a lending oversight core unit with Luca Prosperi. There's been, I think for the past year or two, all this drama around the real world assets strategy that the MakerDAO is pursuing and whether that makes sense. And related to that is the whole purple pill schism that Maker had in, in two years ago. And then in the backdrop of all of this, you have the MakerDAO core unit model, which is one of the most, I think, interesting and I think it's fair to say successful examples of truly decentralized DAOs. There's definitely some controversies and it's not without its its downsides, but I think it's a pretty interesting model overall. So in this podcast, we'll chat about all of those things with Monet Supply. He's probably one of the best people in the DeFi and governance space at breaking down these pretty complex issues into simple, easy to understand things. So enough of me rambling. Monet Supply, really excited to have you on. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back on the pod. As I said earlier, there are a ton of things to talk about today, but I think just to start off really simply, is to talk about MakerDAO's background. MakerDAO, founded in 2016 with the vision of being a decentralized stablecoin, it's undergone a lot of changes since then, but in some ways, I think the vision has also remained constant. So could you just like talk a little bit about some of the biggest impacts, some of the biggest changes and events in MakerDAO's history over, say, the past three years, maybe starting with multi-collateral die. Yeah, I wasn't around for the whole time, but I can give my take on the history that led us to where we are now. So Maker was, I would say, one of the very oldest DeFi projects. I think Rune, the founder, originally started working on the idea even before Ethereum launched. So it's really like an OG project. And the core driving mission of Maker since launch has been to build out a truly decentralized stablecoin. So it should be transparent, it should be open to everyone to use, non-discriminatory, and it should ideally be censorship resistant. So it's able to work even if political forces or other outside forces want to discriminate against users. So it was a lot of early work before it launched. At the end of 2017, Maker released the trial run of the Maker protocol, Single Collateral Die, which, as it says, it was just backed by a single collateral asset, ETH, and it actually worked fairly well. It was able to hold its peg pretty closely, even despite the huge market crash throughout 2018. But I think it was running into some scalability issues, where if you're only using a single collateral, it's really tough to meet the market's demand for a stable asset. There's just, there's not that many people wanting to borrow against ETH. So 
the next evolution, which they'd been working on since single collateral die launched, was multi collateral die. So not only ETH, but various other crypto assets, maybe even some off chain assets to actually be able to meet that demand that people will have for a stable coin. And in 2019, I think this sort of precipitated a bit of a split in MakerDAO. There were some people roughly led by Nikolai, who was the CTO of Maker, who wanted to pursue kind of a more pure implementation where it would only accept basically crypto-native censorship-resistant collaterals. And then others, more aligned with Rune, wanted to pursue deeper integration into the real world. So financing projects and real assets off-chain and really taking a more integrated approach. So there was some internal conflict there, a little bit of like cloak and dagger stuff happening behind closed doors. In the end, Rune basically forced people out of the projects due to kind of that conflict. And the DAO ended up aligning behind the integration path of we're going to participate in the real world economy and not just fence ourselves off into, into crypto assets. Obviously, the vision behind multi-collateral DAI taking to a further degree integrating real world assets is the direction that MakerDAO has ultimately chosen. What are some of the trade-offs to that path? Like, Why were some of the proponents against real world assets against it? Yeah, I think a lot of the tension and issues that we're seeing today are bearing out the skepticism that you know Nikolai and other maker contributors at the time had had, which is that real world assets bring up a lot of regulatory risk where as of today and basically forever in the future, maker can't censor die, but potentially governments could censor and sort of seize the collateral that's backing die. So it creates a sort of vulnerability, which some could say is kind of undermining the decentralization of the protocol. And then they're just not naturally transparent. So there's there's a lot of risk of backroom dealings, of self-dealing, of the protocol getting co-opted into funding assets that are not good. So I think it brings about a lot of risks, whether that's regulation, whether that's just underwriting and credit risk. And we're makers doing a good job, maybe better than anyone else in DeFi and in, in trying to solve these, but it's definitely difficult and it's not a straight path forward. It's got its like fits and starts. USDC itself is a part of that real world asset strategy where the collateral is held by Center, Circle, and Coinbase. Some skeptics have said like, oh, this is a, a vector of centralization. And I guess the counter argument to that would be, yes, it's more centralized. It's still complexity-wise much simpler. The risks are well understood. We have a pretty good sense of what Center is doing with that cash. I think they just released a transparency report the other day. So those risks are more minimal, but curious if you would agree with that assessment. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense that USDC was in a way maker's first real world asset that we onboarded because it has aspects of that regulatory risk and sort of a risk to the protocol's decentralization and collateral backing. If as an example, let's say the U.S. government just wanted to do a full court press on DeFi. USDC would for sure be a weak point. But the credit risk aspect, which I think is one of the most difficult parts of working with real world assets, that's actually fairly simple. They basically just hold treasuries, cash and bank accounts, just really boring commoditized instruments. So, so yeah, I think USDC 
was a natural first step in that direction. And I also think that people might be a little bit overblowing the censorship risk that you have holding USDC as a DeFi protocol. Their entire business model relies on people being able to use USDC throughout DeFi and basically a mostly permissionless fashion. So if the government really wanted to try and throttle DeFi, I think that center circle, I think they would be on our side, basically. I think they would be advocating for DeFi and advocating for permissionless use of stable coins and could be in a way, big asset to the DeFi space and shielding us from some of this regulatory pressure. Agreed. I think it's been a net positive for crypto broadly that the USDC is having success, that they're growing and that they're generally aligned, I think, with the broader ecosystem. But we'll see how that develops. One other thing I'd add is you just kind of have to think back to the context when USDC was added to Maker. It wasn't necessarily our first choice of collateral assets. It was really plugging a hole where right after the crypto crash in March 2020, there was not enough people willing to mint die and the price was trending far above the peg, as high as $1.10 at certain points, which really, really put a lot of pressure on vault holders, people who are minting die against ETH and other collaterals. So it was an important way that we could actually protect them from getting washed out in this deleveraging spiral. So if you compare with a protocol like Rye, for instance, Reflexer, where they haven't onboarded USDC, we're starting to see some of that supply-demand imbalance play out there as well, where it's not really possible to find enough people to borrow against ETH to balance out stablecoin demand. Totally. Yeah, I remember Black Thursday in March 2020 pretty vividly. The protocol shortfall was pretty small. I think only 6 million or so, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the time, it felt like it didn't feel like the end of the world, but it felt pretty drastic. And there was a few well-attended all-hands meetings with MakerDAO. Paradigm stepped in as the buyer of Last Resort. I think it's just funny to, to compare it to, I think, some of the blow-ups that happened this time around. And it's the blow-ups with Terra, it's like a thousand times bigger. So yeah, it's just funny how quickly things can change. Yeah, it was six million sounds like small potatoes nowadays, but... I think at the time that was like 5% of the total die in circulation of, of Maker's entire asset base. So, you know, it was really kind of an existential threat. And the fact that we didn't have any real world assets in the lead up to it, I think was a big contributing factor in how bad it got. Totally. And so we're on the topic of, I'm just going to say RWA, so it's easier for me. I'm on the topic of RWA, Mayor has obviously continued further down this path. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the other RWA initiatives over the past year or two? Yeah. So after USDC, kind of the next RWAs that we ended up onboarding were basically projects, real world asset originators that were working with Centrifuge, which is it's kind of like a bridge between real-world assets, and crypto. They tokenize RWAs into NFTs, and they have a process that manages a lot of that back-end complexity. So we ended up onboarding, I think, four, maybe five different originators that are working through Centrifuge. A lot of those are still open and using DAI to this day. What I think we saw with the Centrifuge issuances, uh, if you will, is that 
there were some sort of edge cases or weak spots in the initial tokenization process and making sure that we really did have rights against these assets and we were protected. So it did take a little while to kind of iron out that backend and make sure that it was really protecting MakerDAO as it should. And then beyond that, I think that some of these centrifuge deals, they're not necessarily as scalable as Maker would have liked. It requires like a lot of due diligence and review and risk analysis to be confident to add one of these originators. And maybe they're only going to borrowing or minting like 10 million die, 15, 20 million die. So I think that it makes it a little bit difficult for a maker to really move full steam ahead on RWAs when each deal takes a lot of work and then it's not really moving the needle that much as far as die amount being issued. Totally makes sense. And as you said, it's the evaluating the credit risk component that's the most challenging from a risk and technical standpoint. And then I'm sure the, I don't even want to begin to dive into the legal complexities necessary to structure some deals like this. Yeah, I think the legal structuring was probably one of the most difficult parts as well. I'll say that I think the RWA team at Maker and just the DAO and the protocol overall have made a lot of progress on that. So I think that we're arriving at structures that we think are repeatable and can work at scale and protect the DAO and die holders in edge cases where not everything goes according to plan. So yeah, I think the legal structure and legal risk aspects, happy to say that I think we're making a lot of progress there. But then each new counterparty that we're working with, we still need to make sure that the credit risk is still acceptable for us and that the price also is right, which I think is, that's somewhere that we've we've had issues in the recent past where maybe the deal is okay, but if they're only offering less than you can earn from like a treasury bond of similar duration, then, you know, the risk adjusted return is not right for us. What are your thoughts on just real world assets broadly for MakerDAO? Like, is there a specific category within them that are more scalable, do really provide a good platform for, for Maker to scale easily? Like, is there a specific category or maybe it's not a possibility? Last fall, Rune, Maker founder, he put forward a proposal on the forum, kind of like a new framework for looking at real world assets, which he called the arranger model. But the TLDR on it was that it would be more efficient and more scalable for us to be trying to work with other lenders as counterparties. So basically we're underwriting the underwriter and then that counterparty is going to go do all the legwork to find borrowers, make sure that their credit risk is acceptable, kind of do all of that bread and butter lending business stuff. And then we can just take a higher level view about are they managing their portfolio correctly? So counterparties like banks, like the Huntington Valley Bank deal, which is up for voting right now, actually, or SocGen, which is the big French bank that's, I think, in various stages of discussion with Maker about refinancing some of their assets with us. And also Monetalis, which is more of like a startup credit fund, which is planning to manage some assets on behalf of Maker as well. Those sort of entities that are in the business of lending to smaller counterparties downstream, those are the type of relationships that are really going to be scalable and easier for us to monitor and manage as well. And do you count the decentralized protocols, the Aave direct deposit and, and compound in this, in this category as well? 
Yeah, I think in a way, the D3M direct deposit modules, they do offer a scalability benefit in a really similar way. Aave and Compound, both of them have a bunch of different assets that Maker doesn't really support directly, just because, at least kind of from our view, the individual borrowing demand for each of those assets might not be enough to like make the economies of scale work. But if we can just provide liquidity to Aave or to Compound or other lenders, they can, again, take care of that legwork of getting all of these smaller borrowers and aggregating in, into something that is sufficiently scaled for us to put capital into. So yeah, I think the D3Ms are probably going to be the future of how Maker lends to against most crypto assets, other than large caps like ETH, like Wrap Bitcoin, staked, staked ETH derivatives like that. Most of the rest of it will probably be going through third-party lending protocols. So we spoke about Rune's proposal to to simplify this the strategy. Anything else worth, and I think we'll come back to the Malitalis, the Love core unit later in this podcast. Is there anything else for now that's like important context, I think, for, for listeners in terms of real-world assets? Yeah, I think the only other thing is that this was part of that proposal Rune made about RWA arrangers last fall was that there can be idiosyncratic risks that develop depending on how those off-chain legal structures and relationships with the off-chain counterparties we're working with are formed. I think last fall and then going into the winter and early this year, he had a lot of concerns about how some of the original RWA deals were set up with Maker and whether individual contributors at MakerDAO might have been becoming too indispensable in the process of servicing and managing those assets. Okay, we actually need this particular contributor to interface with our counterparties or else it's not legally valid. So I think that that's kind of important context for the RWA proposals and I guess conflicts that have followed is that I think that Rune and some other people at the protocol and maker holders are concerned with the prospect of certain contributors or just like individuals in the DAO becoming indispensable, which makes sense. I'm curious, how does the DAO structure these kinds of off-chain, pretty complex agreements with borrowers? Yeah, not a lawyer and maybe not like the best, most informed person on the topic. I think Maker is kind of arriving at a structure that the RWA team and different legal advisors and such think will work basically like forming a trust which is able to take instructions directions directly from the DAO as an organization and then pass those through onto counterparties requesting that a loan get accelerated or that we stop issuance or, or what have you or that we start issuance so yeah I think that's the key innovation is figuring out a reliable off-chain entity that's able to take direction straight from the DAO, rather than needing to have a particular DAO contributor that's signing contracts on behalf of the DAO or like forming a private company to interface with these counterparties on behalf of the DAO. And yeah, ideally, there's like as few layers of separation between maker governance, token holders, and the entity that's actually enforcing our will and going into contracts with these counterparties. Super helpful. And yeah, we're not finished with RWA yet. We will come back to, I think it's at the meat of a lot of 
debates and controversy. I wanted to also, I think, set the stage and chat about the MakerDAO core unit model and how the DAO is operated. The Maker core unit model is one of the few examples of successful crypto protocols that function entirely without one single core team being mostly responsible. I think, again, for good or for bad, there are many different core units that work in collaboration, but also in competition with each other. So I think the model has its naysayers, but but there's a lot to be said for it as well. So curious if you can just set the stage and, and give context on just why Maker transitioned to this core unit model and how you think it's gone. Yeah, my sense is that it was always kind of part of the Maker Foundation, which was like the original core company. It was always part of their roadmap that they wanted to work towards their own dissolution and basically putting everything into the hands of MKR holders and governance on chain. So after they shipped multi-collateral DAI at the end of 2019, I think that became their primary focus. How do we get the DAO to a point of self-sufficiency where we can bow out and then let the DAO take it from there? And the structure that was kind of arrived at was core units, which I look at it like a hub and spoke model, treasury, the core like protocol parameters and voting and token holders sit at the center. And then all of the core units, which are basically like service providers to the DAO, are various like spokes and peripheral nodes in the maker network. And I think that it's got a lot of strengths to it, at least in like a functional sense. The core units are dependent on token holders and the DAO for funding and for authority and for basically enacting any of the recommendations or the code changes that they're proposing. But I also think compared to a lot of other DAOs, it's really important and helpful to actually hire functional groups that are going to be doing work for you and are going to be taking initiative to push the protocol forward on a daily basis. You look at certain other protocols in the space, which are very successful, but I don't think they ever took the initiative to say, hey, contributing to this protocol is a full-time job. And we have specific needs that we need to fill in. And how do we develop that talent and really secure all of the human work that is required to run a complex organization? So yeah, I think certainly not without its challenges as the work that core units are doing is more complicated and there's more core units that have been added to the protocol. I do think it's getting really complicated and difficult for token holders and delegates and such to performance manage core units and maintain accountability, which I think that's a large part of recent governance conflicts is trying to figure out how we can take this idea, which I think basically works, but ensure that it continues working as the protocol gets more complicated, is doing more complicated for token holders to keep everything straight. It is challenging, I think, to evaluate, I think, some of the the success in KPIs for some of these coordinates. I think at this point, there's probably, what, 15 or or 20 or so. And and some of them are, yeah, they're definitely pretty complex. And a lot of them also, like, if you you try to set core KPIs for them, it's like, for growth, you can set sort of KPIs for, for like real world finance, probably doable as well. For some other ones, protocol engineering, 
like risk? Like, how is accountability done? Yeah, I think as of now, and particularly like when you look back a couple months before some of these like sort of belt tightening and budgeting discussions started, there wasn't really a formal process for performance management and asking the tough questions of like, do we need this team? If we do need the team, how much budget do we really need out of them? What are we expecting them to deliver and how do we measure that? I think these questions weren't really being discussed so much. It's basically just like, okay, we have needs. Let's stand up some teams to start filling these needs and working on stuff the protocol needs to grow. Yeah, I don't think we're looking at the full life cycle of a workforce of like, okay, what happens when somebody's not performing? It's kind of just like pushed off like, okay, well, we can vote to take away their funding and fire them, or we can reduce their funding, what have you, replace replace contributors or leaders. But the actual nuts and bolts of when are we going to decide to do that? How do we proactively set expectations so that we can avert the, these conflicts before they get to a head? I think some of that sort of thinking was less prominent. And a lot of people in the DAO, I think, are of the opinion that we've overhired a bit and that, yeah, some of these expectations were not clear enough. So now we're in a position where we have to ask all these tough questions about how do we make sure that people are really delivering value for money? Yeah, I think that is one of the big challenges, right? A lot of the core units are composed of people that are, are also MCARE holders, obviously. Who wants to be that person and make a stand against continuing funding or these few people within a core unit? Because if you make a strong public stand against them and you're at another core unit, like all of a sudden there might be a bunch of people that want you to now leave the protocol because they'll be coming after you next. And you could almost think of it as the internal affairs division within the, a police department or something. And that might be like a little bit of a, a cynical take. I don't know if that's the best analogy, to be honest, but I think from the outside, sometimes that's how it feels. And it's like only the most, as you said, drastic cases, let's say underperformance or performing to expectations that are actually brought up to governance, because that's when there's enough momentum between everyone where it actually, it clearly makes sense. But I think what you're saying is in a standard startup, there's the CEO that can, sure, if someone's doing something good enough, but it's not excellent, like you need to improve or you're gone. Just like that pressure literally does not exist in a doubt because of this lack of, of structure. Yeah, it's for sure difficult because there's commingling of personal relationships where a lot of people in the DAO know each other and basically like each other with sort of like work and financial relationships. And the responsibility of performance management and keeping budgets in check and, and all of this is really diffuse, spread around all the maker holders and delegates and maybe to a lesser extent, like between core units themselves thinking, okay, is it appropriate for XYZ core unit to be taking up so much of maker's budget? But yeah, nobody has that primary responsibility of, you know, it's my job to make sure that we're not overspending at the margins or funding non-core initiatives that aren't really critical for the protocol's success. And yeah, if you make it your job to be the budget cutter, it's super uncomfortable because it ends up kind of impinging on personal relationships. Theoretically, maybe it's tougher to work with these people if they feel like they're getting shaded. This sort of human level 
interpersonal difficulties is sort of a motivating factor and maybe Rune's proposal, recent governance proposal and stuff like that were like, and also Hase's proposal, like how can we actually ensure that we are managing the workforce in a effective way? I think reading between the lines on Rune's post, which I think definitely want to touch more on Hasu and, and Rune's posts. Before that, I think just to wrap up this loop around the core unit stuff and working for DAOs, I think there's a ton of other protocols that are two or three years behind MakerDAO in the sense that they're really around products and have a core team and they'll be looking to become fully DAO funded and, and, have, and have many different contributors work for the DAO, whether it's through core units or working groups or pods. I think it's the name is relevant. I think it's it's all the same principle. Like, what advice would you have for the founders and, and for the employees working at these DeFi protocols today? Like, should they copy the MakerDAO core unit model? Should they plan ahead and iterate it at all? What advice would you have for them? Something that Maker ended up doing, and I think it worked well, and other protocols seem to be adopting somewhat, is they have a core team with people that they know are aligned and competent, maybe like working under a, a foundation or a company that initially started the protocol. Think about spinning out some of those functional groups into independent sub-DAOs, pods, core units, what have you. Maker, I, I know that the risk team, the oracles, and the, the engineering team all kind of spun out of pre-existing teams at the foundation. And I think that was, in hindsight, that was like a big tailwind because these people already had a lot of context on the protocol's roadmap and specific deliverables that we needed. They already had trust built up between each other and then also among members of the community and voters. What we've seen is that over time, these core units, like I joined, I joined the risk team as it was already being spun out of the foundation. So the teams can then onboard new people from the community, onboard external people, but they have that core of direction and trust, which can really get you off to the, a good start. And I think Ave is kind of, they've somewhat moved in this direction a little bit too with board Ghost Labs, which you know Emilio was working for the Ave company and he kind of spun out into his own decentralized contributor to the Ave protocol. That's an example of that sort of spin-off sort of style thing working really well. I guess the other thing I would say is as long as token holders and the DAO maintain power of the purse, I think as an early stage DAO, you're probably better off funding too many teams and like having too much of like a bias for action and then ending up a year later in an uncomfortable position where you're having to make cuts and tighten your belt. But I, I still think that's a better position to be in than not having enough action and not funding enough of a workforce to actually keep stuff moving. There's obviously risk of overspending and maybe you onboard contributors that aren't the best that you most want, but I think bias for action and bias for hiring in the early stages is better. And then you can clean it up later. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. And I think it's important to set high level priorities and, and frameworks ahead of time and progressively decentralize in, in stages and bring in more contributors in stages in a, in a thoughtful way. Again, similar to, to, to sort of standard startups. 
different in, in others, but really is rocket science. So I think now we're getting into the meat of this podcast. I think we have the context on MakerDAO's journey over the past two, three years. We understand how it works with all the different core units, the complexities, some of the politics. I think there's a ton to dive into in terms of recent proposals. And I guess like I'd ask for your help here, like where should we begin? I think, again, just from a high level, we could talk about Rune's endgame plan. We could talk about the love core unit debate. I think Hasu's post, maybe we can talk about it after, but yeah, I wonder what we should cover first. Maybe the love core unit, just because it was chronologically started happening first before Rune introduced his endgame plan. It's kind of like a separate track, but it's sort of related, or you can draw inferences between them a little bit. Got it. Luca Prosperi has been working on the Love Core Unit, which stands for Lending Oversight, over the past few months. Can you talk a little bit about what it is and what's been going on there? Yeah, so the Love Core Unit was basically started through like a maker's core unit incubator or like accelerator, which is another core unit called the Strategic Ecosystem Scaling Core Unit. It's tough to just come to the DAO and request funding cold without already having built up some reputation and showing some work product. They basically offer people the opportunity of starting out as a trainee core unit, if you will, under them, and then spinning out into a fully fledged core unit directly related to the DAO afterwards. So yeah, he's been working as part of that core unit accelerator for about like six months, I want to say. And the idea of the Love Core unit is to act as a second layer of review and of defense on other core units that are onboarding collaterals to MakerDAO. Primarily, that's been related to the real-world finance core unit because those RWA-type deals are more complicated. There's, in a way, there's more that can go wrong, and they require more oversight and management. But I think the vision of Lending Oversight Core Unit is that it would also interface with crypto collaterals and regular vault types as well. So it would be reviewing the process of collateral onboarding in RWA. Is the process covering everything? Is it sound? And then also giving a secondary review on individual deals. So one example of this, which is kind of topical here, is they provided, the Lovecore unit provided like a secondary review of the first sort of attempt or draft of the Monetalis RWA collateral application. And initially Monetalis was, I believe, requesting 500 million die worth of debt ceiling of borrowing capacity from Maker to invest into UK-based green energy and green economy loans and various other deals like that. But they were, Monetalis is a startup. They've just were performed in the past year. They don't really have an established track record of lending in these sort of markets. They also raised a lot of their startup equity from various kind of like OGs of MakerDAO, which in a way it requires closer due diligence because there's at least the appearance of a conflict of interest. I think most of these Maker OGs, they have far more financial stake in Maker succeeding than some angel checks they're writing. So I think in a way it's actually not too risky, but it definitely merits more scrutiny when you have these sort of like potential conflicts that could be making the deal less suitable. 
from a high level, again, as an outsider, like feels useful to have, I think some level of oversight and, and scrutiny, especially when it's on initiatives that can directly affect protocol security and health levels as a whole. What are some of the concerns that people have brought up against it? Why are people against this core unit? The Love core unit uh, vote, I want to say two weeks ago, I believe it was the highest participation rate for any vote in MakerDAO's history. So it definitely got people engaged, which I think is, in a way, it's kind of positive that we're, we're finally getting whales off the sidelines. Nikolai came back to vote bunch of VCs that haven't really been participating were voting. So I think that's positive. As far as concerns that people might have directly about the Love Core unit, there's a potential that it creates more red tape and bureaucracy and layers of cost on the process of doing these reviews without bringing enough benefit of additional safety and additional oversight to make it worth it. Makers kind of in like a budget tightening cycle. So I think people have a really, they're skeptical about adding new costs if they don't feel like it's actually necessary. So I think that might be part of it. I think there's probably aspects of maybe people think that this sort of function would be valuable to the DAO, but they're just not sold on a particular person leading it or the particular way that it was set up or kind of had its mandate specified. So I think there's some of that. In a way, though, I feel like it kind of became a proxy war is basically a vote, but a lot of people were voting not really about the Love Core unit itself only, but kind of as like a show of resistance to other initiatives that that Luca was participating in as just like an individual member of the DAO. There was this idea that a lot of different people involved in various core units had brought up called the Growth Task Force, which... The idea was basically to give some funding and more autonomy to various DAO contributors to pursue kind of idiosyncratic opportunities that don't really clearly fall under any particular core unit or person's responsibilities. And I think there were concerns among members, some people in the DAO, that was centralizing stuff too much. If you give people too much autonomy and funding that they're not answerable to the DAO for, are they actually going to deliver benefits to the DAO or are they going to be off on their own track doing stuff that isn't really aligned with what MKR holders want? And I think one particular thing about the growth task force that I don't know if anyone said this, but my read is that this kind of struck a nerve with certain people is that they were wanting to explore capital raises. So selling MKR to investors or maybe selling other bonds or or other forms of raising capital to be able to beef up our surplus buffer and have the capital that we need to take more risks and pursue more opportunities in the DeFi space. But when you are raising capital from outside investors in a DAO that can upset delicate balances of power, you're giving certain people more votes. So I think there were a lot of people who were just kind of uncomfortable with that initiative and the direction that various contributors who were involved with it were, were taking the DAO. And this was kind of a way of them voting no confidence in that particular initiative as well, over and above any concerns they had about the Love core unit proposal itself. I think if you look at the results of the vote, I think a lot of it ended up being large 
Maker OGs such as Rune, Nikolai, and others voting against the Love Core unit. And then other large token holders, I think primarily comprised of, I think it's fair to say, VCs, such as Andreessen, I believe I saw you in there and Hasu and, and some others as well sort of vote in favor of it. And I think some people frame it as sort of like a anti-VC crusades, like VC versus DeFi OGs. And I think I saw you you tweet that it's not necessarily the, the fairest framing. Like, why do you think it sort of ended up splitting that way? Maybe it's worth touching on Nikolai's return as well. Because from my perspective, looking at the situation, Nikolai has said from the beginning and talked about the risks of integrating multi-collateral die and, and the additional complexity would bring. So shouldn't someone like him be in favor of more stringent risk procedures? Like, yeah, curious if, if you could help us unpack some of the, the narratives going on here. To me, it feels like the VCs versus the true community of MKR holders, it feels very forced and contrived. And yeah, I think that narrative is I don't feel like it's super accurate or helpful to understand the situation. I will say that um, there's a core of MKR OGs, I'd count Rune and I'd count Nikolai among them, and then many others who really are focused on the vision and the mission of MakerDAO and trying to actually deliver something that is good for the world, a public good, uncensorable, decentralized money. That's a really powerful vision. And to be frank, I don't think the VCs really care about that so much. I mean, like their mandate is to make money for their limited partners and themselves. So I think to the extent that there's any validity to that OGs versus VCs narrative, it lies in the fundamental incentives of these actors. Like Rune, Nikolai, they're both already rich. Like I'm sure they literally could care less about the money. And at this point, it's all about legacy and vision and yeah, what they want to achieve out of the DAO. So if there's any validity, it's probably something along those lines. But I think there's another aspect where it's it feels a little bit like a power struggle as well, where they just want to make sure that they don't lose control of the protocol to external actors who might have like a different view on certain stuff than them. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to like wrap your head around it because there's a lot of history to it. And there's kind of an overlap of these high level sort of vision stuff and then the low level, like what the proposal is actually about. It's not about the vote necessarily. It's about the implications and who's aligned on each side. Like that's potentially the the more important, interesting angle to look at. Just like what are the, the second and third order effects? I think some of the people in the OG camp internally to themselves they can be totally sure that they're aligned on a vision for MakerDAO that's positive and positions it as a long-term public good for the world. But some of the actual recent actions and like history of the DAO from an outsider looking in, from like the perspective of like a VC investor in MakerDAO, um, it's totally reasonable that they'd be concerned about some of these RWA proposals and yeah, the appearance of conflicts of interest and some of the heavy handed measures that were proposed to like force them through. So I think it makes perfect sense that the non OG minority investors, the VCs 
want extra layers of oversight to make sure that they're not going to have like value exfiltrated out of the protocol and siphoned into particular people or basically not shared with the DAO as a whole. Someone needs to make like a political alignment chart, but for each crypto protocol and break down some of the voting blocks and party lines, I think that'd be a pretty interesting experiment with MakerDAO. No, it definitely would. I think it would be interesting to see whether people align on all of these issues and, and how certain voters have changed recently. The way that we're talking about it, this type of human, political, public-facing debate, you can really carry it pretty far when you compare it to real-world U.S. politics. There's figureheads for each viewpoint. You can Maybe they're like the House Majority whip or whatever, and everyone, even if they might not necessarily agree, everyone in that party will line up and vote alongside them just because it's important to, to stay aligned. It feels like some of that's emerging and backroom dealings and reshuffling of delegations. It's all coming out. <laughs> Pretty fascinating. Yeah. And I, I guess I'll pipe in here to say, I think MKR holders, it's their prerogative to decide who they want to delegate to. So people were raising a stink somewhat about shifting delegations. In my opinion, that's fine. It demonstrates engagement from the token holders who are actually kind of the key stakeholders in the protocol. So it can be uncomfortable when you realize that a really small number of people do have really outsized influence on the protocol and in its direction. But I think engagement from token holders is really a positive and I'm happy to see so much more of that in the past couple months. So to shift the conversation over to, to Rune a little bit, obviously Rune is the founder of MakerDAO, worked on the project for, I want to say five or maybe even almost six years since I believe 2015 or, or 16 is when he started. He left in the formal language used was he's taking a step back in 2021 when the foundation was dissolved and funds were returned to the DAO. I don't think he commented on the forums or took place in discussions for a few months. He returned, commented on on some of the, the core unit proposals in December, and then obviously more recently has put together a, a pretty complex and long proposal on, I think, his board for MakerDAO. So curious if you can help unpack his role and, and his actions over the past few months. I guess I think that's his hiatus from participating in the protocol and governance, I think it was fairly effective at achieving what he wanted to achieve out of it, which is give the protocol and various other stakeholders time to develop their own voice and begin sort of taking ownership of it. I have a sense that he would have preferred to not have to come back or feel like he had to come back and start participating again. And he's maybe a little bit reluctantly re-engaging because he thinks that some of the direction the protocol is going is going to be problematic in the long term. But yeah, I would say that, you know, Rune's hiatus and then return, I think that kind of achieved what he needed out of it, which is to make sure that there are other viewpoints that can develop without him taking all the oxygen out of the room. So he proposed this new endgame plan over the past month, month and a half. It's got a lot of parts and pieces. It takes a while to sit down and read through and mentally put it all together and understand. But I think that the motivations behind it are 
probably stuff that most people would acknowledge as issues. There's a natural slope of interests, counterparties of the DAO becoming more entrenched. MakerDAO, it always has the power of the purse, so it can always remove funding from contributors if they're not aligned. But there is a sense in which if some of these core units or contributors are indispensable, where the DAO can't effectively function without them, it creates risks where it's difficult or maybe even impossible to have tough discussions about budgets. Where people are becoming indispensable, it does create a lot of risk to the protocol's decentralization. My sense is that the end game plan is trying to solve for that in a sustainable way through mechanism design and basically creating this complex system where everyone is acting out of their own self-interest, but it all fits together in a way that supports the long-term health and sustainability of the DAO and moves it towards progressively more decentralization, more immutability, where some of these human-level challenges can be pushed farther and farther out to the periphery and, and made less of a risk to the DAO itself. And to clarify, like, I think, yeah, I think it's fair to say that those are reasonable things to consider and, and minimize human conflict and decision-making, sort of minimize conflicts of interest. Like I, those are all, all things that are good to, to hedge against. What are some of the solutions that Varun has suggested and wants to propose? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of different elements, but I think the ones that jump out at me as the most important are the idea of metadows and then a separate sort of part of the plan about decentralized voter committees. The concept of metadows is that MakerDAO is becoming more complex with all of these core units and sort of peripheral business lines and different attachments that Maker has. And it's becoming too difficult for Maker holders, delegates to maintain and manage the protocol. So the idea is that you try and collect these areas of complexity into basically sub-DAOs, he calls them meta-DAOs, and then spin them out of the protocol where these meta-DAOs will have some degree of independence. They're like semi-independent from Maker. They'll have their own token in many cases, kind of create their own internal incentive structures. And the thesis is that DAO-to-DAO relations, Maker interacting with these meta-DAOs will be simpler and easier to manage than the existing state where the DAO is having to performance manage and budget for various core units that are all part of the greater Maker, MakerDAO organization. My take on it is that for MetaDAOs, there's a lot of cases where a DAO-to-DAO relationship is not going to be easier to manage than a core unit relationship, creates more potential for stuff to become misaligned, where the MetaDAO is thinking of its own interests rather than the overall MakerDAO. Certain MKR holders might have variable interest in some of these metadows. They might get some interest in the tokens. So there might be more potential for like conflicts of interest or kickbacks or other types of corruption. So yeah, I think that the motivation is sound, but the prescription of how to solve it, I think is probably only really suitable for independent products that could stand on their own as like a separate protocol and just closely interface with Maker, less suitable for something like the engineering core unit or the risk core unit where 
they're really like a service provider and giving MKR holders like an opportunity to own upside in those service providers, it feels to me like a can of worms that maybe is best not opened. I think the real answer to some of these issues is trying to make the work product of these core units a little bit simpler and create a better sense of competition where, okay, if one core unit, let's say the risk core unit is not meeting MKR holders' expectations, there should be two or three other service providers that would be willing to bid for the opportunity to work for MakerDAO. I don't necessarily think that those service providers being DAOs or MetaDAOs is going to make that process easier, though. I think that a lot of it has to do with more documentation, you know, core units really being focused on making sure that they're not irreplaceable, which is kind of an uncomfortable thing to be like working towards your own replaceability. But I think addressing those problems head on is going to be more effective than spinning stuff out and introducing token incentives, which can just kind of muddy the waters. I guess the other element is decentralized voter committees. Yeah, what the hell are those? (laughs) (laughs) The idea is that Maker has set up a delegation framework that in a lot of ways is very beneficial, but it's still there's like a disconnect where Maker owners themselves are not so engaged in setting priorities for the DAO, in decision-making, and thinking strategically and on a values level, like where do we want the DAO to be headed? So the idea of decentralized voter committees is that MKR owners, token holders can self-organize. They can basically like form themselves into relatively value-aligned blocks of voters. And then they can interface with delegates, with potentially with core units, and take a more active role in kind of driving the sort of changes they want in the DAO and and making sure the DAO is working for them. So specific stuff that voter committees would be doing could be ranking strategic priorities or like even defining the sort of things that would be ranked as strategic priorities, allocating budgets, electing delegates and potentially like executive delegates who would have more of like full-time job as, as being a delegate and representative for MKR holders. So yeah, I think the motivation of getting MKR holders more organized and more engaged in governments is on the right track. I do see a lot of risks of this sort of model as well, though, where let's say that you have like a dominant voter committee, like for instance, the one that Rune founded and is kind of leading to help push his endgame plan forward. They have a really outsized influence on how those priorities are defined and how they're ranked. They have potentially the ability to vote strategically, gathering all the votes they have under their banner or so have you, and voting strategically to gain as many of the appointments or different like funded powerful roles within the organization. So yeah, I think that there's an element where tightly coordinated blocks of voters can kind of disadvantage minority holders or people from like less favored viewpoints. And yeah, it feels risky to me that some of these things could favor some MKR holders at the expense of others. So if I were to basically simplify the crux of the decentralized order committees, it's really just like more formalized voting structures. You could almost say like re-centralizing decision-making and, and, and making it more feasible to 
create a centralized roadmap. Yeah, I think in opposition to Pasu's plan, which we'll probably discuss later, but I think Rune is trying to avoid a situation where decisions are centralized, but I think that it risks falling into that somewhat if his voting committee is has enough votes to kind of sway stuff and call the shots then the only way that you can have a voice within governance is to participate in that voting committee becomes like a natural center of gravity for governance action and the financial upside or the influence upside that you get with participating in a smaller non-majority committee is you know potentially way less so yeah i, I think it's trying to align the protocol more with what MKR holders want, create more accountability and budgeting and setting the roadmap. But I think that it it might end up giving Rune himself or other kind of like high up people within voting committees influence beyond just the, the sheer number of tokens they have. Really, really, really helpful breakdown. And it's a good time to now talk about Hasu's recent post, which I think is, is also very interesting. Can you give us a quick TLDR of what Hasu's proposing. Yeah, I, I think Hasu's plan is somewhat simpler and definitely a shorter read and a little bit easier to grok than the endgame plan, partly because it's borrowing from structures that we see in you know regular corporations and management. So the crux of the plan is that it would introduce what he calls a council of makers, but basically it's management or quasi board of directors layer between MKR holders and delegates at one end, and then the maker workforce and core units at the other end. So ideally this council would be elected for some amount of terms so that there's pay for these, these council members, these quasi board directors, and then a little bit of job security so that you can, actually attract the best talent who's going to be able to provide really high quality leadership to the organization. And then basically these council members who are elected by MKR holders, they're going to be trying to set a strategic direction for the protocol. Like how do we actually grow and achieve our goals, help coordinate between the different core units. They'll have a more direct responsibility of controlling budgets and managing performance. So the current state where the responsibility of making those tough decisions is very diffuse. It's not really any one organization or individual's responsibility enough where they feel like it's worth it for them to cause conflict. The hope is that this sort of council structure will help solve some of these issues. You know, it's their job to control budgets and hold core units accountable. And it's maybe simpler for them to do that. That's their specific responsibility. That being said, there's been a lot of criticism of this council structure because, for one, it does kind of resemble a corporate hierarchy, which, just like on a philosophical level, I think people really want DAOs to be different and better and more transparent and more open access. Yeah, I think that that's the core element of the plan is basically creating a management layer between token holders and core units to hopefully have better strategic alignment and better accountability. An important caveat, though, is that the actual voting systems and the nuts and bolts of like how the DAO runs on chain wouldn't change. MKR holders will still 
have to vote to approve any changes to the protocol, to approve any expenses. So it does create a centralization of authority somewhat, but there's still fairly strong checks and balances against it. Yeah, that's a really great summary. It does borrow some pretty basic principles of of corporate governance that, again, have been working for for hundreds of years, which is have decision makers, have clear accountability, have established ways of setting budgets and creating a high-level strategy. Like Those things are useful for reason. And I think while I agree with this idealized version of the DAO with purely decentralized open access for all and, and everything comes down to vote, like I think anyone who's contributed or worked on a DAO, I think it's fair to say that trade-offs are an occasional centralization is needed, especially if you're a startup-like protocol that is still iterating on product and, and competing. I guess you could maybe argue for MakerDAO, it's starting like it's it's achieved product market fit, it's ready to be a bit more ossified and and you don't necessarily need drastic changes. So you don't need this kind of centralized top-down decision-making anymore. But from a high level, I think if the DAO can, if token holders still have final authority and can still arbitrarily remove anyone from this council, like I think that's a pretty reasonable checks and balances. Of course, this council would have a lot of influence and, and drive a lot of the discussion. Yeah, I think the risk of the council, in my opinion, there's a lot of what I consider to be off-base narratives about, oh, it's centralization. Oh, it's just turning Maker into a corporation. A lot of bad takes about securities laws, too, on the timeline and stuff like that. I'm not really concerned about hardly any of that because MKR holders still have the final say on every single material decision in the organization. What I think is more of the long-term risk, though, is that it's sort of like putting a Band-Aid over all of the issues that we're facing as the organization grows more complex, where even though MKR holders have the power to fire the council, have the power to basically just unwind Tasu's whole plan if they ever felt like it wasn't aligned, if we build up the organization to have more operational complexity in the meantime, there's a risk that Sure, MKR holders can rug the council, but it might not be possible to run the protocol with that level of complexity that has built up without them. So they are replaceable, but on a operational or on a functional level, they become indispensable. And I think that's a similar concern that's driving some of the stuff about core units as well. So I think that's the way that some of these MKR voting conflicts are going to be resolved, I'm hoping, is that we recommit to trying to reduce complexity as much as we can and have some of these locuses of centralization where it helps us think well strategically and really act with a little bit more force. But we should also be making sure that we're not painting ourselves into a corner and like creating situations where, in theory, we can unwind stuff, but in practice, we can't. Is it fair to say that Ahasu's post is counterpositioning to Rune's proposal? Like it's one or the other. I think that there's elements where they actually overlap quite a lot, which is funny. So for instance, like Hasu, he has this idea of the council of makers, which is basically people who are paid a relatively high salary to, to get the best talent to help drive strategic direction and really play a more central oversight role over spending and core units and workforce accountability. 
Rune's proposal has a concept that's very similar of executive delegates, which basically some of the delegates who receive enough voting support and make certain commitments to basically treating it as their full-time job would get a little bit of like soft job security and get higher pay and maker compensation as well upside. And then they would serve as like a more formal interpreter or like interface between these voter committees and the workforce. So I think in a way there there's actually elements where they're very similar, but I think there's plenty of elements where they're somewhat opposed. Rune has a lot of big changes proposed about how voters are going to self-organize or about how core units are even going to be organized, whether they're just service providers under the DAO or whether they're meta DAOs. So I do think that maybe there's going to be some sort of compromise where elements of both proposals are incorporated, but they're to some degree a bit mutually exclusive. Totally makes sense. And and just touching on the topic of delegation, as you said, both proposals have an element of more focused full-time delegates. Like, What are your thoughts on effective delegation? Because every protocol at this point pretty much has on-chain delegation. To my knowledge, MakerDAO is really the only one with some element of full-time compensated delegates. Every other protocol relies basically on, honestly, it's like kind of goodwill and economic incentives that people will vote, but practically speaking, may not be the most effective. Like, do you think protocols are, they should be experimenting more with incentives? If so, how? Yeah, I think the recognized delegate program at Maker. So basically, if you commit to voting consistently, and then also communicating with the community to say why you're voting a certain way, you can earn compensation. And if you're able to gather enough voting power, it's really enough to make it your career or like your full-time job. And I think several delegates at Maker, it is their full-time job. I think that that's positive because particularly for a DAO that has as much complexity as Maker, you can't really make informed decisions just checking into the forum five minutes a week. You have to commit more time and more effort to it than that, people are not going to do it without correct financial incentives. Whether or not they could even afford to do it, like they just won't. So I think other DAOs should definitely consider what do they need out of their delegates? Do they have complicated proposals that require like fine tooth come to review? You might need to offer some sort of financial incentive for people to do that well. In other cases, I think a lot of protocols, they're sort of hoping and praying that their delegates are going to take initiative and drive forward proposals to make the protocol more dynamic or just kind of seize some initiative. And I think for that, you may also need to consider, are the incentives right to actually have delegates do that in practice? I think most protocols should be considering, what do we actually, our delegates are going to do? Are they doing it now? And then consider, if not, why not? I think a lot of it has to do with creating the right incentive structures. What do you think will happen next in MakerDAO land in terms of sort of a broad question? Like there's, there's so many moving parts, both with the love core unit, with Rune's ideas, with Hasu's ideas. There's, there's other controversies and debates. Like what do you think will, will happen over the coming months? Well, I hope that there will be somewhat of a detente, I guess. It's gotten pretty spicy in the Maker forums, I can't lie. And it's good that people are expressing themselves and just getting real, but that level of overt conflict and anon sock puppet accounts, and I don't think it's going to be sustainable over the long run. So I think that 
it will be important at a certain point to really raise the level of discourse back up and have the vibes have to be right, hate to say it. So I think that's one element where hopefully I can take a breath, decompress, and be aware of the balance of power within the organization and maybe hopefully try and upset that as little as possible. I think that was a big part of what kicked off some of these recent proposals were that there was a group of people, a lot of them were members of core units who were talking with outside investors, you know, also considering raising funds. And from Rune's perspective, I imagine that was a huge red flag because it, you know, has the potential to really alter the balance of power and potentially set the protocol in a direction where he can't help it course correct if it ends up going bad. So I think big changes to governance and like how protocol is actually making decisions should be based on consensus as much as possible. It's a project that I've been working on just kind of on the side as part of my work at the Risk Corps unit is considering how resilient is Maker against governance attacks and particularly against a hypothetical attack where somebody buys up or borrows enough MKR tokens to trigger emergency shutdown, which currently requires 150k MKR to basically just immediately shut down the system. I think the primary use case of that is like, okay, if we're getting hacked and we need to just shut down as quick as possible with no governance time locks, just to save users their money as much as we can, that's the primary use case. But it's also like a really key element of minority investor protections, where if one faction in the protocol gains majority power, emergency shutdown is the one deterrent that they have against misusing it. So that's just a tangential example, but people are considering, hey, do we still need this emergency shutdown mechanism? You know, the protocol has been running a very long time, has not been exploited in a critical way. So maybe the risks and rewards don't balance. But in my opinion, you know, that would be an example of a really big governance change that is too big of a shift to the balance of power to really do right now. Yeah, in general, it feels like it'll be really, really important and, and fascinating as well and, and, and somewhat entertaining to, to follow what's going on in Maker because it, I think it's really setting the stage and for, I'm sure, discussions and conflicts and lessons that a lot of other protocols will undergo as they progressively decentralize, as they launch working groups and core units. So really good to get ahead of the curve and, and stay up to date on what's going on. If I had to try and summarize like the crux of this discussion and all these different debates, it's really philosophical differences around how MakerDAO should scale, how the protocol should be grown and upgraded over time, as well as how the core contributors should be held accountable. Those are things that some of the core stakeholders feel are not being done super well or could be done differently. And they want to step in and propose structures that can fix those problems. So I think from my perspective, that's really what it boils down to. And again, just highlights the challenges of having like a DAO and token holder governed protocol. These aren't unfixable things. I think these are worthwhile discussions and there will be solutions and we will figure out a way. That's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about as well. But I think it just highlights some major problems for now that a lot of folks have, have brought up, frankly. 
Yeah, I think that, that pretty much hits the nail on the head. And I'm overall pretty optimistic. I have like some concerns of my own just personally about elements of, of Rune's plan. And I also understand people's concerns about Hasu's plan. But I do think that by and large, we're asking the right questions. How do we deal with complexity? How do we deal with sort of workforce relations and maintaining the power of token holders, not just in a theoretical sense, but in a practical sense? The fact that we're having a lot of care holders get off the sidelines and start voting, and we're having these tough discussions and asking the right questions makes me overall super optimistic about where Maker's headed. Yeah, really great to chat about MakerDAO. I want to switch gears a little bit, I think, to talk about the Cosmos ecosystem, because it's one that you spend time on, I spend some time on, and I think more and more folks are paying attention to, primarily on the Cosmos SDK side and realizing its utility as a platform for building new app chains. We saw with YDX last week choosing to, to move off of Ethereum and StarkNet and move on to the Cosmos SDK. It's a pretty sizable move. But I think it's also the source of, of some of the most drama and you know, on-chain discussions in crypto, just because of how active the governance is. Every chain is, has their own consensus and is, has, has active validators. Like My first question is, why are you interested in Cosmos ecosystem? What attracts you to following projects like Cosmosis and, and Cosmos and Juno? Yeah, I think I initially fell into it just because it was fun to use. The UX was good. There was a point last year where even I, who I have a decent amount of capital to swing around, but it was too expensive on Ethereum to have fun with DeFi and just test stuff out. So a lot of my DeFi aping shifted over to the Cosmos because it was cheaper. But there's actually a lot to like about it as well. I think that they are really making distinct trade-offs versus Ethereum. It's not like BSC or certain other EVM chains where they're just cranking the throughput to 11 and calling it a day. They're really approaching the problems of blockchains from a different perspective. So I think part of that is that each Cosmos chain is also kind of a DAO. They have pretty much complete sovereignty over changing inflation, changing the chain state, potentially even adding or removing token balances from people's wallets, which we saw a little bit with Juno last year and was very controversial. And they're also taking a more decentralized approach to their own development. So each one of these Cosmos chains, it's typical that they'll have a community pool of a certain set of allocated tokens. And they kind of like pay them out to contributors, pay them out to core units or a workforce, grants, through voting. It's a really interesting mix of L1 chains, but also DAOs. Totally. And I, and I think the added element, which you kind of got into, is every user is incentivized to stake, right? And once you begin to explore staking, must explore, okay, who do I stake to? And part of that's the commission and security, but Usually the commission's the same anyways for most of the top validators. Security, security and uptime, again, a lot of for a lot of them, it's similar. So it really comes down to like reputation, community awareness, and, and governance. How are these guys voting? What are they voting on? Oh, there's all these decisions. What are these discussions about? So it just like red pills people into to following and caring about some of these governance decisions. 
because they have skin in the game to do so. And, and I think, yeah, like if you take a look at some of the most active Cosmos chains, most of the proposals are around direct economic changes. As you said, token balances with Juno, Prop 16, and some of the more common ones are, are changes to the staking rewards or which pools get rewards and and just like how staking functions and, and all those things. So I think it's just bringing to light some pretty interesting discussions. And honestly, it might be fair to say that it, Cosmos ecosystem is the most active sphere of governance within crypto in terms of on-chain formalized governance at this point. I don't know if you'd agree with that. I would say that that's the fair assessment. Ethereum, app layer DAOs, like DeFi in particular, there's a lot of really consequential and important stuff that goes through governance. But I think in most cases, there's fairly strong alignment that votes either going one way or it's going another. There's not too much controversy, which is maybe why this recent maker stuff is like getting so much attention because it's real bona fide controversy. People with a lot of stake in the protocol who are having material disagreements. And I think that we we see that a lot more in the Cosmos ecosystem. You know, there was the Juno proposal. Some people were thinking that a big whale had kind of like gamed the airdrop. And was there a way to kind of undo that after the fact? There are recent proposals on the Cosmos hub, basically trying to figure out what sort of development path it's going to take. Are they going to host smart contracts on Atom on the Cosmos hub itself? Or should those be offboarded into different zones interchain security and other other features like that that kind of more loosely link it to the hub. There's a mess, like a web of different personal interests among a lot of the people who are Cosmos OGs. They've spun out of the hub and now they're working on their own chains, which have varying levels of alignment with the Cosmos hub and with each other. So it's incredibly complicated, but also just really fascinating. And I think you see a lot more of like that bonafide disagreements. It's not governance theater over there. Like people are really, you know, fighting for what they believe in. As a, as a fellow participant and, and user of some of these Cosmos ecosystems, definitely agreed. I think it's genuine bonafide disagreement, not governance theater. What are your thoughts on the roles that the validators play? Because one, I think criticism of the Cosmos on-chain governance system is since it combines consensus with governance power, right? If I have, let's say, Osmo tokens, validator I I stake to with my tokens that provide security to the network, they also, by definition, receive my governance power. They can vote with the tokens. If I, the user, vote, it can override the validator vote. In general, like if I don't, they will vote their opinion and, and have a huge amount of, of sway. And I think... Critics will say that it results in this cartel of validators that are the same across a lot of the top Cosmos chains, and they don't necessarily have the skin in the game that on another on Ethereum apps, like, yes, it's still potentially concentrated, but at least they have skin in the game. So I think there's been some criticism over the role and importance of validators and innovations around separating security and, and staking with the actual governance power. But I think it's a whole it's a it's an interesting topic and curious if you have any any thoughts there. Yeah, I think you know you mentioned, but I think it is a big benefit that your delegation for for the governance votes in Cosmos is conditional. So my validator only votes for me 
if I don't vote myself and override them. Now, how many people actually, as just a delegator of like 100 tokens, how many people go out and vote on all the proposals? Honestly, probably not much. I'm fairly interested in Cosmos, and I've probably personally voted on like well under 10% of the proposals on any chain that I, I stake on. It's just, it's super complicated, and the pace of governance over there is very quick. Yeah, I think that it's a fair criticism. You know, I'll, I think, I don't know who, if people are solving this already or whether like some startup is going to get hyped hearing this, but I think this is maybe a case where a little bit of well-designed DAO tooling could actually go a long way. If you go to Kepler Wallet or you go to Cosmos Station now, you're presented a list of validators based on their stake weight, how many tokens have already been delegated to them, which is like a really quick and dirty way of measuring a validator's reputation and trust within the ecosystem. But it's like a passive incentive towards plutocracy, like, oh, how far are you going to scroll down this list of 100 validators before you just choose the one that you've heard their name before? You know, I'll say when I first got into Cosmos ecosystem, I would delegate to like Cosmos Station because I'd heard of them and I was like, okay, I'm pretty sure they're not going to get my stuff slashed. But yeah, I think there's a lot more that we could do about discovering the validators that, of course, aren't jailed. They're not going to get your token slashed. They have good uptime, all of like the bread and butter of the actual validation. But discovering who has voted similarly to how I have in the past, or even like being able to like just kind of mock fill out ballots for some of these past proposals and say, okay, what validator is actually aligning with these votes? Another element is like some validators are really important code contributors to some of these Cosmos chains or to just, you know, the Cosmos S2K or IBC. And, you know, they're using their commissions to do good and to drive value to the ecosystem. And then there's others who are basically just coasting. So I, I think that an interface, better discovery tools for validators could go a long way in, in helping to solve that. Yeah, it's also inspired a, a, an interesting point, which is like, we brought up an earlier question, which is governance incentivization and how most protocols don't do it. Validators really are playing the governance incentivization game. They are full-time delegates. And that might not be the original framing. The most important part of validation fundamentally is securely validating and the, the network and ensuring that blocks are produced correctly. I'm not a validator. I don't know sort of all the details and nuances that go into that. I'm sure there's a ton. My assumption is that over time, it will get easier. It will get more commoditized. I think it, there's an argument to be made that it already is somewhat and that to really differentiate yourself is through actively contributing, whether it's via code commitments, as you said, or via governance. And But it, it just helps solve some of the bootstrapping problems that we, I think we love to complain about in Ethereum DAOs. Yeah, I think it's really powerful that if you can build a reputation for contributing in Cosmos, there's a very clear path to financial sustainability. And there's some independent validators that I follow on Twitter and such, and they are shipping code and they're voting and they're raising the level of discourse. And uh, they're able to support that all with their validator incentives. I wish that some of these people had more support because they're doing a lot more work than 
certain other kind of more corporate validators who should have a lot more capacity to contribute, but they just don't have the incentives. Any in particular that in terms of strong validators that you want to highlight? I think they can be a little bombastic sometimes, but notional. They ask the tough questions and they contribute. So I, I appreciate them. J. Abbey, Golden Ratio. There's actually, yeah, there's a handful. I'm not going to remember all their handles on the call, but there is a community of really strong value-add validator contributors in Cosmos, which is another reason that I'm bullish on the uh, ecosystem overall. Governance aside, moving into the more Cosmos consensus and, and, and architecture side of things, like what are your thoughts on the sort of app chain narrative? Do you think it makes sense? Do you think more apps from others will, will consider using the Cosmos SDK and transitioning? If so, do you see specific sets of use cases or, or focus areas that that maybe most, most make sense? Yeah, I think that there's a strong case for exchange type protocols to consider like app chain model, because like a corollary to the traditional finance exchange business, trade execution fees are not going to make it. That's not how existing exchanges make money. It's not going to be how crypto DEX exchanges make money. The whole like uh, Uniswap fee switch or no fee switch, it doesn't really even matter because Uniswap will never be able to extract fees sustainably like a protocol fee on trade execution. It's simply not going to happen. What they can extract money on in a, a sustainable way, which is similar to how TradFi does it, is... Stuff like payment for order flow, stuff like basically, you know, lump it all under MEV. Exchanges create a lot of MEV opportunities, but if they're just like an app on Ethereum, it's complicated and there's limited scope to, to capture any of that value that they're exposing versus an app chain model where that MEV is naturally flowing to the validators of your chain, to the token holders. And there's ways that you can even specialize the way that your chain runs or handles the mempool or transactions in a way that makes it better for users while also giving yourself like a sustainable value prop. So if I were to pick out one type of protocol that should really look into it, it's probably exchanges because I don't think on Ethereum, they're going to be able to make money on trade execution fees. So let's say the transaction ordering and payment for order flow, aka MEV, is where some of the opportunity lies. Like, what does that mean for validators? What does that mean for token holders of these chains? Like, what are the, if we take it one step further, what are some of the implications? And I think people have floated like a theory that one of the reasons DYDX wanted to move to an app chain is that it also can help rectify regulatory risks. If you're charging fees on trade execution and then you're passing that off to token holders as like sort of a quasi-dividend, there's a fairly clear case that resembles a security. When if you're basically participating in the consensus of a chain and then earning some of these MEV opportunities just kind of as a side effect of running consensus, there's maybe a stronger argument that that's, that doesn't resemble a security and it's not really similar to, you know, something that would be regulated in traditional finance. So I think that's one thing that people are probably considering somewhat, but yeah, I think most important thing is 
basically that you can control key parts of the user experience when you're running your own chain. And then, yeah, it gives you opportunities for sustainable revenue that if you're just an app might not be possible. Now, the next question is, do you want to be an independent like sovereign chain or do you want to be an app specific rollup or something else that is still utilizing Ethereum or maybe the Cosmos Hub, an external source of security? And I think that's maybe what I think will be very interesting in the years to come is as some of these Cosmos chains have more outside assets, have various value locked on them that that's external to the chain and the governance of these chains has so much almost unbounded power and authority. What sort of governance risks and exploit risks are there? And how can people like profit by misusing governance of sovereign chains? Yeah, definitely an interesting topic. And I think, yeah, related to the most recent Cosmos Atom proposal, which is Proposition U2, about the role of P2P validator and, and sort of bringing liquid staking to Cosmos through interchain security. It's, a, it's just a new dynamic in a world where it's possible to for everyone to be truly independent and have their own app chain. Like, when does it make sense to actually leverage the security of the Atom Hub? If it does make sense, like, does it make sense just from a bootstrapping perspective? Does it make sense long term? Like, how do you manage that transition? Like, there's just all these interesting dynamics again. So definitely one to... Yeah, agreed. It's, yeah, it's breaking new ground. So I'm sure there will be crazy edge cases that none of us expect. Are there any, outside of Gnosis Safe and, and Discord, are there any like DAO tools that you are using actively or particularly enjoy any that you want to highlight? I'm part of the tally.xyz team. So I'd be remiss if I didn't shill them, but I mean, to be honest, I use Tally like almost daily basis. Uh, it's a huge quality of life improvement for me that I can just go to Tally and then I see all of the various DAOs that I have tokens in and all the votes are like right there. I don't need to be like searching through to like try and find what's happening now and miss stuff. Um, and I think it's quality of life improvement for people launching DAOs and DAO operators as well that they don't need to rely so much on their own infrastructure. They can kind of just use something that works out of the box. Big fan of Tally. I think Gnosis is doing a lot of interesting stuff over and above just their Gnosis safe as well. You know, trying to like think through more complex access controls, ways that you can delegate authority, but then still have it be retrievable by the DAO if stuff doesn't go as planned. And yeah, I think these more complex access controls are going to unlock a lot of, a lot more throughput and governance because you're not going to need to run every single decision through the slowest possible decision-making body, which is the whole DAO that's voting on chain. You can delegate and you can do it safely without risk of your multi-sig signers rugging. If someone's launching a DAO tomorrow, what governance framework or, or voting structure should they use? I think it depends. I think if your DAO has like fundamentally low stakes and it's maybe for like NFT projects particularly or stuff like that, I think the agility of a multi-sig is, and, and just using snapshot, which is free for voters to participate, no gas. There's a 
big upside to that. It's just so simple, so easy for users, very user-friendly. If you're a DeFi protocol and you're either holding a substantial treasury of funds or, you know, kind of high-risk admin powers over a protocol where you might be able to change stuff that disadvantages users or leads to them losing funds, I think probably the simplest thing you could do is just use Open Zeppelin Governor, which is, it's basically an iteration on the tried and true compound governor framework that's existed since 2020. Tally integrates it with it, but not just Tally. It's There's open source tools for different front ends, so you have redundancy there. The way that it works is just generally like very well understood. I don't think there's a whole lot of edge cases, and you'll be able to read about it for like an hour or two, speak with people who've used it already, and get a pretty good sense of how governance is going to work. And it supports delegation natively, which I think is... We've seen you can't get every token holder to vote every time, but you can get them to delegate. So that would be probably my my two top picks. Gnosis and Snapshot, and then Open Zeppelin Governor. You can also use both as part of an integrated governance process. Put the high-risk stuff in the governor, and then put the low-risk stuff that you want to be more agile in a Gnosis safe. I think VE token models and just tokenomics in general, yay or nay? Used to be more strongly against. I think I better understand the value prop, which is it creates like a really simple way to manage incentives programs. So if you're a DEX, for instance, like Curve and Balancer is also kind of adopted a similar model. It makes it really scalable to deal with these periodic incentive update votes and process. It sort of depoliticizes it a little bit and token holders can actually recapture some or all of that value of the incentives that they're issuing through various permissionless bribe things. So token holders will vote to give a certain pool curve emissions because they're receiving tokens from that project back. So it kind of engages third-party projects to pay for their own liquidity, where if you were to just have a regular government's governance framework, it's not really clear whether you can achieve that same effect. So yeah, I think that there's specific cases where it has some some strengths. I think that there's also clear weaknesses though, where like there's just such strong incentives to get that liquidity back out of your VE token that it's guaranteed that you're going to have a convex style protocol built on top of you. And there's huge returns to scale for that sort of convex thing. So basically you're going to end up with one third-party protocol that controls your protocol. and you know, I don't think that's sustainable or like really even an acceptable end state. You're just kind of relying on the goodwill of another protocol who is sort of aligned with you, but not fully to just do what's best for you. And I understand why people adopt it, but I think there's definitely aspects where it falls short. I think that put that pretty well. Very easy to argue against the staking models, I think, in all cases. But I think, yeah, there's there's maybe some exceptions. It's like that meme with the, the the flex seal or whatever, and the guy's like, got a leak? VE tokens. I think that some projects, they're just like, why is the number going down? Like, what do we slap on this? So, yeah, I mean, I yeah, people should think long and hard before they do that. <laughs> yep, definitely. General thoughts on Lido in terms of their positioning in the market as the dominant Ethereum staking provider long-term concerns about monopoly, ETH peg, like, 
is this a project you you follow like general just like opinion on it yeah i for sure follow them i guess full disclosure is i punted like a for me moderate amount of money at their dow fundraise last year so i am an investor somewhat biased in that sense i think people are concerned about lido having too great of a stake in ethereum staking which I think it makes sense if one entity has enough stake to halt the chain, for instance. And that's definitely a cause for concern. But it's important to recognize also Lido splits their stake among a bunch of independent node operators who are running in various places all over the world. At least as of right now, there's not a way for Lido to like recall that stake from operators. So... It really is not like Lido controlling that amount of stake, at least in the current state. It's distributed across a whole node operator set. And when you compare that with something like Coinbase Cloud or just Coinbase Exchange staking or Binance or Kraken, the entire stake of those organizations is going to their own validator who is choosing blocks and what have you. So I think it's a risk, but I think there's greater risks and... Lido has a much clearer path forward to mitigating some of these risks with proposals like dual governance, which is something that Hasu and and some other contributors came up with. And basically, Lido, I think, is striking a fine line between scaling up enough to actually be like a viable competitor to these centralized exchange stakers, while also leaving the door open to further decentralize themselves and address some of these internal risks that they have with the protocol. One last question, I think, before we wrapped up. I wanted to ask, how does it feel to be vindicated with the whole terror collapse? I think it's something that you've been talking about on Twitter for quite some time, getting into some pretty heated debates about, I think, a lot of different things in that ecosystem, Terra. Peg, anchor, sustainability, etc. Like after the fact, how do you feel? Feeling a lot of things. It's it's something you've been talking about for a while. I'm sure, you don't want to like dance on people's graves, not too much, but yeah. Yeah, I feel vindicated somewhat, but I also feel like it did not take a genius to see that that was the necessary end result of all that. So yeah, I don't. I'm not gonna like be dunking on people. If anything, should have been more of a consensus view before the collapse, that it was on a fast track to zero. The amount of economic damage that it did to retail investors is terrible. And think that regardless of whatever sort of legal responsibilities end up being asserted in this case, part of me wants like Doe and some of these other insiders who cashed out hundreds of millions of dollars. I think they should have consequences and they should be paying some of their ill-gotten gains back to retail investors who lost everything. Regardless of any of that, like if you're a builder in DeFi, irrespective of any legal risks, even if you're a non and nobody will ever find you, you should have a sense of responsibility to your users. And growth hacking at all costs is not acceptable. The sort of peak of the DeFi 2.0 hype, people were taking dumps all over Maker as, oh, you're boring, you're just leaving yourself behind in the dust, yada, yada. Yeah, that's the point. (laughs) The MO is not losing our users' money. So should we be more agile? 100%. Are we missing opportunities because we're not moving fast enough? Probably also yes. 
But I think the core values that MakerDAO was kind of espousing there are on the money, which is that we should not be playing games with our users' money. We want to be profitable and we want to like drive value to the MKR token, but that's a secondary goal. The first goal is do no harm. And yeah, I think we're doing a fairly good job at that. I think that's part of why our RWAs have been moving at a fairly measured, slowish pace because we don't want to get it wrong and leave die holders holding the bag. Awesome. Well, Monet Supply, really appreciate you taking the time today. Always a pleasure to chat with you and hearing your candid, unfiltered takes on all things crypto governance and non-governance related. So yeah, really good to have you on again. Hopefully we can have you on again in, 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 in the next six to 12 months. Yeah, my pleasure as always. And I guess just let me sneak in like a disclaimer here that I'm just like speaking on my own behalf. So not representing MakerDAO, not representing my team at Maker or Tally or anyone else I'm affiliated with just out here speaking my mind. So, yep. <laughs> but yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It's been a great time.